Today on episode number 412 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I welcome to the show Celine Conta, Ian Cook, and Prem Kumar Rajaram to discuss their book, Opening Up the University, Teaching and Learning with Refugees. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm excited to be welcoming three co-editors to today's episode, Celine Conta, Ian Cook, and Prem Kumar Rajaram. Let's begin with Celine. She's an academic advisor at the Paris School of International Affairs. Previously, she was a research fellow and a Marie Curie individual fellow at Central European University. Celine also acted as academic program manager at the Open Learning Initiative, or OLIVE, which you'll hear a little bit about in this episode, a higher education access program for displaced learners. Also joining me on today's episode is Ian Cook from Central European University Budapest. He's an anthropologist who works on urban change, environmental injustice, podcasting, and opening up the university. And finally, Prem Kumar Rajaram is professor of sociology and social anthropology at Central European University and head of the Olive Unit at the same university. He works on issues to do with race, capitalism, and displacement in historical and contemporary perspective. During the interview, you are going to be hearing me read from the book, and much of what I share is from some of the authors who submitted chapters from the book, and the conversation today is with the editors, but we're going to get to hear even more voices represented in the book, Opening Up the University, Teaching and Learning with Refugees. Ian and Prem, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I feel like the first part of our conversation, at least for me, as one who read your book, is important to be precise in our terminology. Prem, would you speak a little bit about what you believe to be just the importance of how precise we are when talking about displaced learners versus refugees? Well, I think one of the things that we try and do in the book, one of the really, I think, foundational elements is to... Um, is to think about how the ways in which language is used socially and politically can actually be a means of exclusion and marginalization. A term like refugee has um, on paper a specific legal definition, but it's a legal definition that is limited. It doesn't cover the reality of um, the refugee movements, of people fleeing persecution and people seeking asylum. On the other hand, the term refugee also loses a lot of its grounding, a lot of its mooring, and becomes almost a derogatory term that's used in, for example, authoritarian political structures. 
And then we have this strange um, duality. On the one hand, a certain call for legal precision that excludes some people in category of refugees, and then a certain inflation of the concept in ways that really seek to cause pain and harm to, to, to people who have experienced displacement. We try and do two things in, in the book. Uh, we try and, in many ways, we try to reappropriate the term refugee. And the term refugee as, as a term that describes the manifold and complex histories of displacement that different types of people go through, uh, the types of displacement that are not recognized by legal categories. And on the other hand, we also interweave and always use the term displaced um, by just reminding that if we connect the term refugee to the, to the term displaced, we remind people of the way in which the term refugee has been used, both in this strange limiting and inflationary way and the damage that it causes. Yeah, and if I uh, may just uh, jump in here, Bonnie, perhaps to say how this also translates in more concrete frames in which we think our roles as educators and higher education. What we also feel is uh, that the category of refugee student is a very static category that you know, associates a student, a learner with a very specific uh, experience, with a very specific uh, legal status as well as a prem set. And the whole process of this book is about thinking about uh, transformations uh, within the university, within us as teachers and instructors, within uh, students, hopefully, and even beyond the wall of the universities. So we feel that, for instance, the terms of displaced learners, there's a lot more fluidity and motion about it. And it allows for different presence and hopefully also different futures in a way which feel refugee perhaps does not. I'd like to read a little section that refers to this as well. Refugee aesthetics, whether produced by or about refugees, are bound up in an international discourse of refugee ethics in which refugees are objects of humanitarian concern and require immediate pragmatic solutions. And what both of you shared, just that temporary <laughs> label that we place on people and the ways in which it can really be limiting in terms of their present conditions and also future futures as well. Thank you for that. Ian, another thing I know that we definitely need to be thinking a lot about and talking a lot about, not just in this context, but certainly here, is the importance of our clearness on the role of education. Could you speak a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I, I think about this a lot. I think about it listening to episodes of your podcast. I think about it every day. I have to teach a class and we think about it a lot. Those of us who work in education for displaced learners is just ask yourself, what are we doing and why are we doing it? It's like, what's the purpose of a university? What's the purpose of education? Because you can't forget that very often because it becomes a job or it just becomes something that you do. And for a student, like if we can remember back to where we're students, when we were students, we all can because we're all very young. But uh, then it was like very much the case that like, you know, you sometimes you went to a university excited and at some point during your during your years at university it might become a bit of a bit of a slog and then sometimes you might be doing it just to pass an exam to get a piece of paper or something like this and the same can be for educators right at some point you know you get to the point okay you need to get the students from this place to that place so they get this qualification so they get somewhere in their life and this is important and it's especially sometimes important for people who are displaced because sometimes they find themselves very marginalized, very insecure in a completely new country. And they need that piece of paper just so they can get on in their life. So I don't, we don't want to say, okay, you should forget that. But at the same time, when you have such massive 
radical diversity in your classroom. And by this, I mean people from very different cultural contexts, but also of different ages, of very different learning backgrounds. And they all come there and you have a classroom and people want to learn. And sometimes people want to learn for the sake of learning. And that's really exciting. You know, it's really exciting when you have people who might not need to get or might not be able to get or want to get a qualification, but just want to learn because, you know, maybe they have a job which is which they feel is a little bit below what they did back from where they were from, you know, and like now they find themselves cleaning dishes, not to put anyone down who cleans dishes, but some people feel like, oh my God. And they come on a weekend to like a, a refugee education program and they're like, wow, like this is great. I get to learn new things, learn new concepts, really explore new things, let their imagination or their curiosity run wild. This is brilliant, you know? And if you can, and if we can take that and also imbue that into, into our education programs more broadly, then it's brilliant because that's what, that's why we do what we do, right? That's why we teach. That's why we design education programs because education can be radically transformative, both for individuals, but more importantly, that for communities of people, that's, you know, that's why I do that. And I think it's fundamentally important for democracy to basically have a populace which has critical thinking skills, which is excited to learn new things, which knows how to, which knows how to deconstruct the sort of nonsense we often get, we get thrown at us in media and by politicians and elsewhere. And because of that, and then get to set the terms of your own place in society, both if you are someone who was born in a country or if you find yourself in another country because of, you know, because of war or other sorts of reasons that you can't stay from where you from where you were born and then so that's when education the purpose of education suddenly becomes really really important and it forces us to think that not only in when we're thinking about education programs for displaced learners but i think more broadly when we think about why we wake up every morning and go to work in a university I know one of the big distinctions that you talk about is to help us see the difference between education programs versus humanitarian programs and having that separate in our mind as well. Who could speak a little bit about that? Maybe I can pick up on this regarding, as uh, Ian was saying, the end goal of education. And I think in the process, the definition and the boundaries of education also expand. And what we've seen in a lot of the programs that we've been involved in is that we've expanded as a kind of domain that we bring to the classroom, to the university. We went beyond, you know, textbook type of learning to go uh, more into practical artistic practices, to experiment with different formats and to try also to find nonverbal ways to bring different forms of knowledges out in the, in the conversation. This means that we take students as actors of their own education processes rather than recipients of it. And I think that's a key <laughs> difference between, you know, developing education programs for learners rather than humanitarian programs for those we often see as beneficiaries or passive recipients of, you know, unchanged uh, knowledge that's just top down uh, brought to students. And it relates to uh, a question we address as well regarding the specificity in that sense of refugee students, or students, displaced students in our words, but those who are seen as refugees and for whom very often education is merely seen as a means to integration. And integration very often means that we expect a change to happen in the students, but in very specific ways, which are not open-ended, uh, which have a very particular goal, which is uh, you know, their integration into an imagined, consistent, uh, stable, uh, static, and non-transformative and non-transformable type of, uh, of social community or, or polity. 
So the, the, the process of learning and of knowledge, both production and reception, is very unilateral when we think of uh, higher education as, a, as an integration tool or as a humanitarian uh, sort of uh, approach. And as Ian was saying, uh, our whole aim in the book is to recognize the needs for uh, critical students to be very disruptive as learners and to be able to bring uh, to the classroom, to the curricula, to the syllabi, to their teachers, learners, instructors, and to their peers, uh, critical, radical critique. And this requires we really <laughs> challenge the humanitarian and integration frames, uh, we think. Mm. It is not too often that that word disruptive is celebrated in that way. Yeah. Prem, what can you tell us about some of the parallels between others, other demographics or, or groups of people who are marginalized based on race, status, class, and other factors? Well, maybe I can try and answer that by picking up on, on the point that Celine raised about uh, disruptive learners. And I think um, what's really important is, is trying to understand how groups of people who have been marginalized in society are often allowed to enter into university if they reframe themselves, if they reframe their past, if they reframe sometimes identity, certainly the previous learning, so that it is recognizable to two mainstream structures of education. And, and this often means that the disruptive quality of coming from the margins is something that becomes ameliorated. It is, in many ways, it's an act of power, not necessarily a conscious act of power, but an act in which the university maintains its structures, which we'll talk about later, maintains its, you know, its idea of prestige, its ideas of who gets to go to get in, who gets to get into university, and for what purposes. And one of the things that often ends up happening is that the disruptive quality of thinking from the margins, of thinking from the position of social structures that are not fully a part of society, well, it becomes lost in the university. And one of the things that becomes important is trying, maybe trying to understand and trying to work with and for people who are at the margins to see how their previous experiences can have a resonance, a telling and important disruptive resonance in the university, leading to broader changes in curricula, yes, in syllabi, yes, but also in the very idea of the university, of its purpose and its mission, connecting to the points that were raised earlier by Ian and Celine about opening up the university and making it um, a space for radical critique. Um, from the position of, of people who have been marginalized. Um, and these groups who are marginalized, yes, they often displace people, but they're also people who are displaced in other ways. You know, we work with people who have been spatially displaced, but there are people who have been displaced from social structures, from um, economic structures, and from politics. So the experience of displacement is common. Our focus is geographical displacement, but that intersects with all sorts of other forms of displacement, economic, political, social. So much of our conversation has been reminding me of this perhaps overused example, but that too many of us see education as something that is done to someone versus something that they're very much a part of. And this, to me, I think, Ian, will take us nicely into, I'd love to hear from you a bit about the role of the learner. Well, the role of the learner we would hope is the most important role that we can think of inside the university, right? As when we think about teaching and when we think about our classrooms as teachers 
or as even as administrators, I believe we have to try to create classrooms within which the diversity of students' experiences and knowledges can be brought into conversation through a real sort of attempt to make communication the forefront of, 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 of the things we work through. And if we can do that, then I think we have great learning moments. And this, this means, we mentioned, we mentioned before about then uh, disruptive learning and disruptive learners, but I think to put the role of the student front and center, it also means disrupting our teaching practices very often. And it's a wonderful thing to do, I think. I, I mean, we've, with a lot of the work that we do, we sometimes work with brand new teachers in the sense when we set up, you know, education programs for displaced learners, a lot of the teachers that come to teach in them are PhD students who maybe don't have loads of teaching experience. But sometimes we also have, you know, faculty come in and, you know, who are like, you know, you know, tenured professors come in and, and give sessions here and there. They, they're also disrupted by our students, which is wonderful because then you see the students have learned how to be in a classroom in a way which allows their voice to be heard and allows communication to, to, to truly take place in a way that can allow for change. And it, what's, what's key for that is I think thinking through is, is not is starting from a position sometimes where you don't know what's going to happen. You know, where you sort of enter the classroom and you have, of course, like when you teach, like when you teach in any sort of class, you know, you have your lesson plan and that, that relates to your broader syllabi and your course plan. And that relates to the broader goals of, you know, your department and, and you know, the program and so on. But sometimes when you're working in programs which have much less clear defined goals, then the role of the learner almost becomes even more central because if it's not then, then where are you going? Like, and of course, it's great because you don't know where you're going when you when you enter that classroom. But it's really then through communication with the learner that you can find your own sort of steps through. And I think that's 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 just super exciting. I think for 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 teachers to do. Well, one of the things we know that's going to happen when we attempt to live up to this promise of what education can be with and through others is that things are going to get messy, and that's it's difficult because. I, I feel like too much of the time we end up on one side or the other in, in real extremes where we, we can over plan or we cannot plan at all. And, and that, I, at least for myself, doesn't turn me up in very good spaces either. So it's a tension between these two, two practices and one should be shaping the other. And so, uh, Celine, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about just this whole messiness of it all, because I, th I think, I mean, it definitely comes out in the book. So I encourage people to read the book. But <laughs> if they if they haven't read it yet, what can you tell us about some of the messiness that can ensue when we rethink radically the role of education, like we have spoke about, and the role of the learner? <laughs> I, I think, as Ian said, if we are willing to open space for uh, learners to be disruptive, we obviously allow for as uh, teachers or instructors to be destabilized. And we are, of course, not used to this because uh, of the form of hierarchies that exist and uh, inside higher education uh, institutions that structure it. Very often when we move from being, you know, PhD students to teachers, we feel we can like safely contain ourselves to the role of teachers that will be less challenged and perhaps will not be the target of subversive questions or, or difficult uh, destabilizing comments and suggestions. And I think for my part, I remember one particular seminar I gave early in the OLIVE program, which 
just didn't work at all. <laughs> you know, where I wanted to take the students uh, didn't didn't happen, and they were just questioning the very premises of how I built my uh, my old seminar about you know anti uh, anti globalization social movements, and it just didn't connect to their own experience. And it really made me think: How do I build you know a syllabi, but also individual lesson plans that? take into account and start in a genuine way from the experience of the students and that gives space for students to come in with their own visions. So how, as you said, do I build the possibility of evolution within a plan class uh, outline? And, and I guess, you know, again, it, it connects with some of what we've said about leaving, <laughs> leaving space for openings and for uh, open ends. And, uh, and being able to be destabilized and being humble as teachers and not seeing this as a weakness, but rather as a strength. And of course, it's not easy, especially when you are uh, more junior or, or you're start. But for me, that was one of the most uh, important lessons. And actually, I really carry it as a strength in my own uh, you know, professional and, and teaching uh, experience until now. I remember one session about environmental justice when there's sort of a gathering of questions with from the students, like, oh, so what are the sort of the main issues around environmental justice? And, you know, and then, and, um, you know, the usual questions that, that should come up, but instead one of, the, one of the students from Afghanistan said, well, war and bombs, like, you know, and the teacher didn't know how, like, oh yeah, wait a minute, that's a, yeah, that's actually an environmental question. But, you know, like, and the, and the teacher who's a, who's a, who's a guest speaker, faculty, who's super nice, and she's like, you know, oh wow, what a, what a, what, what a, what a great recalibration of my teaching moment. But I think it also happens in the level of program design or, or initiatives as well. I mean, and, 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 it need, and the need to be open is there as well. So for example, Olive, where we've all worked, started not as a sole university initiative, but started in a cooperation with a solidarity group from outside the university. Um, called mix or migrant solidarity and so it's very important that as a university then there's an openness to speak to people outside the university so that you know so that we can grow as educators because i think there is a problem and we mentioned this in the introduction of sometimes we get too much in our bubble inside the university thinking that we're the site of everything. You know, we're the site of politics, we're the site of change, we're the site of education. Well, you know, we're a small part of the world, you know, and once you open your doors and let people come in and they push you to try different things. And that's certainly the case what happened with the with the establishment of Olive. Mm. Thank you so much for that. And you're, you're bubbling up all these thoughts and ideas. I'd actually like to read another section of the book and then just pose another question to you related to this messiness. So I'm reading from your book. The process was messy and often chaotic from the outset, often mirroring the lives of the women who participated in the project. As academics, we had to learn to unlearn our pursuit of perfection, be ready for constant surprises, and help each other unpack those surprises in our debriefing sessions with the aim to move the project further. The tension that I'm seeing in this moment is that I don't think that the goal is that you completely come in with no plans, like that, that there wouldn't be any end point. What I heard, Celine, you say is just that maybe the end point gets adjusted, but also perhaps the path on the way we understand better the context, the terrain. I, I'm not sure if my analogy is going to hold here. I'm thinking about in, in a class I'm teaching right now, I've been teaching some information literacy skills by a guy named Mike Caulfield. He has a whole framework for how any of us can use really simple practices to increase the likelihood of 
assessing the credibility of the news that we're reading. And it's one of those things I had a young man, he, he clearly feels very comf- comfortable to confront me and say, I don't think I'm ever going to use this after the class. And I didn't feel insulted by that. But I said to him in, a, in a, what I hope was a very caring way, because I don't think he was meaning to be rude. Like I said, it's like, I actually think you might be wrong about it, but I'd love to hear, like, please get back in touch with me. But I'm wondering if you if you've wrestled with those tensions, too, where it's sometimes in our learning, we all can't see far enough what it's like to have practiced some of these things. Some of the chapters you talk about teaching video production. So when you're creating things, you're teaching art classes, you know, whatever it is we're trying to produce and create. Sometimes all learners can't see a vision for beyond those initial struggles with the learning. Is this resonating at all? Well, I think you might answer more to the point, Ian, but I just wanted to pick up on uh, on what you said, Bonnie, because I think there's one very complicated tension for us, which I think came through what we've said until now. But the way you put it, I think resonated with me, which is in the end, if we are trying to prepare displaced students to integrate existing higher education structures, however much we hope that our programs, our initiatives, our reflections will make them change, we still have, to a certain extent, to prepare students for those existing structures at one particular moment. And we know those have tendency to marginalize, to exclude, to recognize only certain forms of uh, learning, of knowledge. So we also need to equip our students to you know, critically understand where they are, where they stand, and how they can perform in that particular uh, setting. And that did create tensions, and not just in terms of knowledge and learning, but also um, you know, it got messy in the classroom, but got messy outside the classroom when we tried to administratively register our students, when we tried to get uh, credits and recognitions for the kind of uh, courses that we do, when we try to translate previous uh, university experience before displacement happened so that they get recognized for continuing studies. So there are plenty of levels in which messiness occurred and plenty of improvisation, I think, on our part and uh, on the part of the other authors. And that's definitely one of the structuring tension, I think, that we really wrestled with. Yeah, I, I maybe just wanted to mention the problem of time in, in, in this, because very often students, quite understandably, want to get somewhere fast, you know, because they want to get themselves on their feet and they want to find things to do within the country where they find themselves other than what they're doing. And some skills seem quicker to learn, but they're very important, like language, digital skills, and so on, which is why there's, you know, there's chapters written by authors that, that talk about the importance of these things and, and, and how programs try to integrate these sorts of skill-based courses into their, into their program design. But then at the same time, things like critical thinking skills, which are the basis of genuine inclusion in society, they don't come overnight, right? They're related to things about confidence. Of course, they're related to language as well, right? But they're, they're about being exposed also to different ideas, being made to think that your experience and your ideas are also valid, being able to have those critiqued and not be defensive about them and stand up for them and then and then come to some sort of communicative further point. And all of these things don't happen overnight. And um, they, they need sometimes long-term continued work with the students and with the, the teachers and the administrators as well. I was struck by how often, especially like in, in the sort of informal weekend programs that we've all been involved with, how often students just return again and again and again. So some students, they come, they take 
take a bunch of courses, maybe for a, a semester or maybe for a full academic year. And then they go on, you know, and it's great. And every now and again, you see them around town, you say, hey, how's it going? And then it's, you know, you feel good. Some students, they just come forever. you know, And that's also great as well, because they feel community, they feel belonging. Uh, we also know like from trauma-informed teaching that just having a regular space where people can go every week and, and feel safe is really, really important. And, you know, they just enjoy learning. And so there's like, there's a messiness then, how to say, of having to create programs that not only account for people's very different um temporal needs in terms of some people in a rush some people are, are happy to take it a bit slower but also in terms of some people will just use a program a user program is maybe the wrong word will attend a program and gain valuable skills and, and and learning from it for a year because that's how the program is designed but some programs allow for the flexibility for students to come back for many many iterations of it and that means that the messiness is built in there as well and that's actually a wonderful thing i think i think embrace the mess is a real uh yeah, it's a really important learning lesson. Plan a lot. And then if you plan a lot, then you can embrace the mess without being too scared. Ah, Prem, this takes us perfectly to how I'd like to conclude this part of the show. And that is to talk a little bit about ideas you have for educators that might even go beyond this particular context. How do we help learners remain curious and empowered? Well, maybe I can try and pick up from the points that Celine and Ian raise. And I think it, it starts, you know, well, we do all of this program that we've all thought on and we've all worked in. Um, it runs two types of programs. And I think Celine and Ian both talked about each of these programs. One is a very informal, in, in, in the best possible sense of the word, form of cultivating critical, inquisitive learners. The other has a, um, a very clear pathway. Uh, it, the idea is to get people into higher education degree programs, which means that educators sometimes, well, we have to teach, you know, sometimes very um, mainstream Eurocentric syllabi that do not speak to the experience of students, that do not speak to their disruptive potential. And this, you know, it goes back to the idea of the plan and at the point at which we allow things, we allow things to get messy. But I think it's also really important to understand that students do cultivate a sort of a strategic detachment, a strategic ironic detachment from these plans. They know that they need to learn this in order to get to university. Um, and I think it's good to reinforce, you know, the, the sense of ironic detachment. Yeah, you know, I have to do this. I have, it helps me get to university, it helps me further my life on my own terms. And I think this is the role of the educator. It's not simply about cultivating a, a syllabi. It's not simply about helping to build a curriculum, but helping students and ourselves understand the power structures that cultivate certain ways of seeing, certain ways of knowing, and certain ways of thinking. And students can maintain this critical, ironic distance from that. And I think that's important. And then, you know, more broadly about what, maybe everything we've tried to talk about, everything we've tried to write about and authors have tried to write about in the book um, in terms of what educators can learn. I think, you know, one of the things that we try and do is that we say that the book is called Teaching and Learning with Refugees. So it's this, as we've said before, it's this mutual, this interaction, this common relation. 
And one of the things I think that's really important um, for educators is that as we start working with people who are systematically and structurally marginalized from, from, from universities in many parts of the world, um, then we ask ourselves, if we're doing this, then are we part of the purpose and the mission of the university? And of course we are. We're just picking up on a purpose and a mission of the university that is often clouded, often underfunded or unfunded and left to one side. So what does it mean then if we start thinking that we're working with people who have been excluded, we're learning from them, we're recultivating curricula and so on. And I think it's about fundamentally, and this is very broad, but about rethinking what the university is, its connection to broader society, how when we think about the university, not as a rare up, rarefied space of exclusive learning or of specific types of research, but a way of engaging with power structures of university of, of society as a way of thinking the public role of the university in cultivating democratic knowledge and, and cultivating democracy, as Ian said right at the beginning, then we perhaps we can do what we try and talk about in the last part of the book, which is deborder the university, open it up, understand its borders, see where these borders may be, um, may be questioned, rethought, and, uh, and sometimes broken down. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations, and this probably won't surprise people listening to me talk about your book. I'd like to begin by recommending that people read Opening Up the University, Teaching and Learning with Refugees. And I come to this with very little knowledge of working with this population. And I guess I could admit this to the authors or the editors of the book wasn't one that if I hadn't known Ian, I think in advance, I don't know if I would have just said, yes, this is exactly what I want to read on my vacation. <laughs> but I'll tell you the first page in, I, you had me. You had me because these are important questions for us to be asking ourselves. I feel like just continually, you talked about that a little at the beginning, Ian, of just really, really important things for us to be asking. And it can be, I don't know, we can sort of lose sight of that. So I'm going to encourage that people read the book. And the other thing that I did on vacation is the second thing I'd like to remember. I did a little bit of binge reading and a little bit of binge watching. I talked to my friend from college and she recommended the television show Somebody Somewhere. And I'll read from the description. Sam is a true Kansan on the surface, but beneath it all struggles to fit the hometown mold. Grappling with loss and acceptance, she discovers herself and a community of outsiders who don't fit in, but don't give up. And boy, she did not disappoint. My, my friend from college is always so good about uh, making movie and television recommendations that don't disappoint. And she still is scoring 100% all these decades later. <laughs> so it's just a delightful <laughs> watch. I would highly recommend it. And I didn't realize she had recommended it to me when it had just first come out. So I feel very hip and cool these days staying with <laughs> What's popular and emerging in culture, which doesn't usually happen. I'm making references to movies from the 70s and 80s. So it was kind of fun to do that for a change. So, so Lena, I'm going to pass it over to you for whatever you would like to recommend. Thank you, Bonnie. Well, uh, I've recently moved back to France, so I've been listening to a lot of uh, French radio and uh, reading a lot of French books, and I thought that's not you know, appropriate to recommend here. But I've also moved uh, a little bit in discipline, and I've been working mostly on uh, environmental issues. And so I'd like to recommend a, a very nice podcast called Warm Regards 
which you know brings together uh, activists, researchers, policymakers, artists to just try to understand what it means to live in our warming world today, how people adapt, uh, how they mitigate those effects, but also all the stories uh, behind you know those big words. So that's a really nice podcast. There's loads of episodes, and uh, I think it's a it's a good listen. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And Ian, what do you have to recommend today? I'm going to recommend going to have a bath. Um, this is because <laughs> living in Budapest, there are like lots of these nice baths. And I always, I always like was hesitant to go there. Like when I first moved here, like a decade or so ago, I'd go there with my then girlfriend, now wife, because it was like a date thing to do. And then like, you know, once you get older and have kids and like whatever you, you there's less time, but now working very often on a Saturday because we were in a weekend program, uh, sometimes then I think, okay, I need to do something like on a Monday to like de-stress. So I started going by myself and it's really good. Like just going to the, like you know the thermal baths by yourself and sitting in there for a few hours there's no distractions from the world you take some reading and honestly I just think much better afterwards like sitting in the sauna and especially like on a Monday morning there's no one there just retired people you know so it's just like me and a bunch of old people sitting in a bath and sitting in the sauna and it's just like wonderfully blissful and I afterwards I usually just my brain is just like a million times sharper so yeah I'm going to recommend having a bath oh that is a podcast first. <laughs> it has never been recommended. And now I'm thinking, when when I was in on my vacation, when I read your book and watched the television show, I was in a desert called Joshua Tree. It's in California. And they had, I'm going to have to look it up. I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. I think it was a noise bath. But that, I mean, it's so hmm. it was so unusual. I had no, I was thinking... Why would you need a noise bath? I wonder what people do there. And they had pictures of it on the advertisement on the website. So I, I don't think it's very common for us, at least not in, in Southern California where I live, to go have a bath. I don't know where I would do that, but you can bet I'm going to go look and see if I could have a bath somewhere <laughs> besides in my own home. <laughs> Sounds happy. That's also good. That's also good. Yes, yeah. yes. My kids would definitely recommend that part. So. <laughs> All right, Prem. Um, now you, the pressure's on now. So, uh, you know, do another podcast first, or are we going with an old classic? Um, well, uh, something a, a lot more boring than Ian's, but something I think is important. It's um, it's a website called globalsocialtheory.org, and it's like it's a crowdsource collection of uh, of thinkers on social theory whom we don't normally read in university. So it's a focus view from the global south and people who've been marginalized in academia for whatever reasons. And the nice thing about it is that you can write in with ideas of, of people whom, whom you think others should read. And so it's quite eclectic, and that's a nice thing about it. I feel like we have just come up with the most delightful set of recommendations. I can't wait till this episode airs and people can find out about your book and more about your work. And I'm just so grateful for the connection. Ian, thank you for introducing me to your two colleagues and all your co-authors through, through your work. This has been delightful. Absolute pleasure, Bunny. Thank you, Bunny. Thank you, Bunny. As I close out today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed number 412, I'd once again like to thank all of you for listening. If you've been listening for a while and have yet to rate the podcast on whatever service it is you use to listen, I'd greatly appreciate you rating it or giving it some kind of a review to share the podcast with others. 
And if you'd like to not have to remember to go get the show notes with all the great links and information at teachinginhighered.com slash 412, you could head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And that'll subscribe you to the weekly updates. You'll get the most latest episodes, show notes, and also recommendations that don't show up on the episode, related episodes, and other good resources such as that. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.